Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is sponsored by Hero Power. Support clean energy at no extra cost. Go to myheropower.com and in less than two minutes, get Green E certified renewable energy certificates. They'll match 100% of your electricity use. Never pay more than ComEd rate. Your bill doesn't change. Your service doesn't change. Plus, get $25 off your first bill just for helping us fight climate change. Go to MyHeroPower.com. MyHeroPower.com. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Everybody knows it's a political talk show that I uh, host, but uh, I'm obsessed with basketball and I'm really obsessed with the Bulls and with uh, the last dance uh, going strong. Uh, four episodes have been released by ESPN. I'm taking this opportunity uh, to talk Bulls basketball, to talk basketball, and in this case, talk documentaries. And my guest today, Steve James. Welcome to the show, Steve. Great to be here, Ben. Uh, so now, just so a few people out there who don't know who Steve James is, uh, he's a big time filmmaker here from the city of Chicago. He made hoop dreams among other things and, uh, something I know a little bit about cause I somehow or other got to feed from the hoop dreams trough, uh, by write, writing a book called hoop dreams after the movie came out. I just got a uh, question today, Steve, from someone, uh, <laughs> did you do the book first or did the movie come first? Uh, and do you tell them the truth? No. Do you tell them the truth? No. I've I've been lying about this for years. You know it. I go, man, that Steve James stole every good idea I ever had. <laughs> Froze me out of the royalties. I'm broke. I'm stuck in my attic doing a radio show. I'm not, not even radio. It's a podcast. Anyway, no. I, I sometimes, Steve, it really it varies day to day whether I tell the truth. Uh, <laughs> So anyway. Well, and, and especially we screwed you because you were the person that first wrote an article at all on the film to try and help promote our effort. Yes. So, boy, we really, really screwed you. Yes, and you uh, framed that. I didn't believe you. You told me that, and then you sent me a picture today uh, of the frame. Of course, you could have hurried up and framed it uh, yelling at your wife. Why? Hey, frame that thing. Yeah, no, I, I believe you actually framed it. Uh, all right, before I um, – we have a great basketball conversation with Steve. Not only is he a, a movie maker, he made Hoop Dreams, uh, but Steve's a passionate basketball fan, and he wasn't bad at uh, basketball. We'll talk about Steve James' basketball career. But first, Steve, I, <laughs> I mean, you were way better than me, Steve. I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I probably was. You, you probably. No, take probably out of that. <laughs> we were actually in a game together once. You probably don't remember in the 80s, but um, – Anyway, before we uh, reminisce about the Bulls and basketball, uh, your last movie, which I'm also a huge fan of, City So Real, about Chicago's mayor's race. Uh, give folks, just remind them, you've been on our show talking about that. Uh, give folks a reminder of where what the movie's about and when they'll be able to see it. Well, I wish I could tell them when they could see it then, but we haven't sold it yet. The, uh, this this uh, pandemic has not helped our sales efforts, let's just say. 
um, you know, that's the real negative thing about this pandemic is it's hurt, hurt my sales efforts. But, um, <laughs> but no, it, but, but we, we made it and we premiered it at Sundance and we played it at this great festival in Columbia, Missouri called True False. And it's lined up for some other film festivals to play online, but we're still trying to sell it. And it basically what it is, as you know, is it's a four plus hour docu-series, what they call them these days. Um, where we filmed uh, rather extensively during this last mayoral election uh, and including the, the Jason Van Dyke trial and the Ed Burke indictment and all the crazy stuff that happened in Chicago <laughs> over the course of that one year and made a series out of it. Yeah, and it culminates uh, with the first round of the mayoral election when uh, – uh, Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot uh, wound up as the what uh, the top two vote getters, and then of course they went off, uh, and they had the uh, runoff, and Lori won. Now you did not follow uh, them after that. I was just exhaustion. Was that it, Steve? That, that you... yeah. Well, it was it was a, a something like that. I mean, in the film, we we now you know indicate that Lori won and won handily and we, and we show a bit of her uh, speech at her victory um, celebration. And, and then we also bring in a litany of voices about all, all that stands in front of her, the, you know, the, the problems to be solved, uh, which, you know, has certainly come to pass. Uh, we didn't, we didn't anticipate the pandemic though, but, so yeah, we didn't we didn't want to follow through the election because I I thought that by the time you got through us showing you the first round with all these crazy folks running for mayor that you would be saying to us please 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 don't make me watch the runoff. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> no moss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Uncle. Uncle. <laughs> uh, no, I I think it was a wise decision, and I well I say that as a political junkie. Um, and I, um, I have to admit, uh, Steve was kind enough to let me see, uh, he sent me some links. I got to watch it. It's a great flick. Uh, and I, I look forward to the time when we can talk about the movie and I can write about it. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not under some kind of embargo about it right now. I, I forget the rules of engagement, but I, I believe I'm under an embargo. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about it. Right. Even. No, well, I mean, it, it put it this way. Um, it would be more helpful to us if we sold it and then we know what's happening to it when you write about it, okay. you know, uh, yeah. and or that we have a we have a another conversation about it. But but, you know, Ben's a, a, a humble guy, if nothing else. You know, he's in the movie <laughs> briefly in a, a on his former radio show <laughs> from, his glory, from his glory years. Talking to Ricky Hollywood Hendon. Yes, uh, and that's a that's a pretty good little scene. Yeah, no, and it uh, it's a good scene. He originally Steve told me that I would like the documentary was going to be about me, so I was like, oh wow, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, what happened to the? All right, enough on that. It's called uh, City So Real, and one day everybody will be watching. It's a great flick. Uh, and um, all right, let's move on to talk basketball. I'm utterly obsessed with The Last Dance, and Steve and I have had at least two conversations on the phone about it. He shares my obsession to a degree or another. 
uh, big-time basketball fan, Steve James, made Hoop Dreams, of course. Steve, talk about your life in basketball. You actually have a legitimate – all I did was play intramural basketball at Evanston High School, okay? <laughs> I can't even claim, you know, remotely that I was good. I was really good at intramurals. I wasn't even really good at intramurals. I was average at intramurals. Uh, but you – You, you did What's you that? didn't even do, have any pine, you didn't have any pine time on the on the high school team. No, I, okay. I went to uh, Evanston High School, proud graduate of ETHS, oh. and I. Yeah. This is okay. This is every. I did not start playing basketball uh, until uh, I was in junior high. Somehow or other, I was from Rhode Island. I for some reason nobody ever played basketball in Rhode Island. So by yeah. the time I started playing basketball, I was so late. I never learned how to dribble. I shoot wrong. Kids make fun of me all the time for my shot. I had no uh, techniques of any kind. I believe, Steve, that had I had basketball training at an early age, like let's say seven or eight years old, I probably, with my obsessive behavior, would have been good enough to barely make the team and sit on the bench. That's an honest, <laughs> okay? I would have been able to make the team and sit on, I'd be like the 15th guy, you know uh, but but you were on the team. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, and, and in defense of you, I mean, Evanston's a big school and traditionally been a pretty good basketball school. So, you know, that's not an easy team to make. Thank but, you. Thank you for um, that defense. I, yes, I grew up in uh, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, uh, Tidewater area. And, um, you know, uh, and I played for Hampton High School. There were a number of high schools in the area, but Hampton was the you know the the high school going way back to its origins. Um, my dad was a uh, terrific athlete there, um, an all-state football player, uh, and track, and was in the Hampton High School Hall of Fame. His picture was on the wall, and I was not anywhere near the athlete my dad was. But, but I, I knew better than to try to play football or in track since he was so good at it. So I picked the sport he didn't play, which was <laughs> basketball. And uh, and I, you know, I was a pretty good player. I was a good, I was a pretty good high school player. I, I was a, you know, a two year starter. Um, I was, you know, my senior year, I was the leading scorer on our team and leading rebounder, but. The thing you have to understand about our team is we, we had a madman for a coach, and we played this slowdown offense. We scored about 48 points a game. So he did not do much for my uh, stats, let me just say. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> coaching problems. We'll get into that with the yeah. Bulls. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like to say that I averaged 20 points a game less than Allen Iverson did when he played in the district uh, 20 years after me. All right, let's so. talk about that. Uh, that uh, That's a great transition. Uh, one of the movies that Steve made is about Allen Iverson. Uh, um, I'm biased, Steve. I think you're, my favorite movie is obviously Hoop Dreams, but I gotta t I'm got just a bias because I was uh, involved with that project at the end. I... I think the Allen Iverson movie was, is, if I take Hoop Dreams out, is my favorite Steve James movie. Talk about out, making a movie about Allen, Allen Iverson because so much of it uh, is about it's autobiographical. You know, autobiographical. You talk about you growing up and uh, your dad and uh, life uh, in Virginia. Talk a little bit about the Allen Iverson movie. 
Yeah, you know, because Alan Iverson is not a big enough topic that you know I could just do a film about him. I gotta, I gotta include myself in it. You know, uh, so the way that happened was is that this was part of the ESPN Thirty for Thirty, the original Thirty for Thirty um, films, and when they reached out to me and a, and, a, and a lot of filmmakers and said, you know, we're, we're going to do this, and they knew, you know, they knew I because of hoop dreams and my love of sports. They said, is there any sports story? that you know you've always wanted to tell that that you know happened within the last 30 years of, of when espn started that's where the they want to do 30 for films based on 30 years of espn that's where the title came from mm-hmm. and um and i you know i immediately thought of alan iverson um because he had played in my district and lived in my town as well as lived in neighboring newport news for part of his growing up and um I had wanted to do a film on Alan Iverson in high school, but uh, it it happened at the time that um, I was actually finishing Hoop Dreams. Um, it happened around 1996-97, and I was we were finishing. Um, I mean, not not 96-97, um, 93-94, and we were we were finishing Hoop Dreams, and I just was like, "There's no way." I can uh, go with no money and try to do a film on Alan Iverson when I'm when we're trying to do a film with no money on Hoop Dreams. So, so, <laughs> so it, it just kind of went by the wayside. So when they when they told me about this, I just I went back and I just started to talk to them about Iverson in high school and the and the the, the racial bowling alley brawl that he was involved with in high school and how that changed the course of his life. And they knew the story because it was a big story back then. Even when he was in high school before the internet, it was a big story. And, but they said, you know, how would it be different? And I said, well, I'm from there. And I started to talk about that. And they immediately said, well, that's an angle we would love to see you explore it in. So they were the ones that pushed me to, uh, to make it more autobiographical. And so what I did is I went back to Hampton, you know, now the, the film came out in 2009, but you know, this was, you know, many years later, um, I went back to Hampton and to revisit what had happened to Allen Iverson and how it had really divided the community largely, but not exclusively, but largely along lines of race. And to try and tell that story, not from the band's point of like retrying the case, <laughs> but really looking at why, how is it an athlete of his stature in that community where people, 10,000 people would turn out to watch him play before the bowling alley brawl. And so many people wanted to see him go to prison after the brawl. Um, you know, how did this happen? And that's sort of the focus of the film. And, and it was kind of amazing because even all these years later, the feelings were still raw. Um, you know, I interviewed my mom about it. My dad had passed away at that point, so I couldn't talk to him about it. But uh, I interviewed the former chief of police at the time. He was the chief of police who was a friend of our family's, as it turns out. And he was like, why are you doing this? You know, why are you coming back here and stirring this stuff up? You know, so it was a it was kind of a very kind of personal look at race in my hometown because it was something that was a, um, you know, a defining aspect of my life growing up. And, uh, of course, told through the story of Allen Iverson, who's a sensational basketball player. Steve, just briefly tell people what the bowling alley fight was. I, I bet you a lot of listeners uh, either forgotten about it or didn't know about it to begin with. What what yeah. was the bowling alley fight? So Iverson, um, in his junior year, 
he was, you know, he was the best basketball player, arguably, in the country. And he was possibly, arguably, one of the best, if not the best football player in the country. A lot of people don't know that about Iverson. Um, he was small, as everyone knows, you know, basketball. But he was extremely fast. He played cornerback and quarterback. And so in his junior year, he led Bethel High School, which was the rival high school to my high school, to the state title in both basketball and football, which was unheard of. So this guy was larger than life in that state and in that region. And then his, at the, before the beginning of basketball season, his senior year, uh, before the beginning of football season, actually, it was over the summer, he went to a bowling alley with some friends of his. And they um, got into an argument with some white rednecks who were at Bowling Alley, and it turned into a brawl. Um, and there's, it wasn't a really long brawl. It was, it, there's a very short video that someone happened to caption on, on a video camera back then, about 12 seconds of it. But you, you see enough of it to see that it was pretty nasty. Um, but what happened as a result of that was is that um, I, I was claimed that what precipitated the brawl was the redneck calling him the N-word and that that led to pushing and shoving and then a fight. Um, and in the course of that brawl, a woman bystander um, got her head cut open. Not It wasn't a serious injury, thank God, but got her head cut open when a chair was flung. And Iverson was accused of being the one that flung the chair. And he and his three friends, uh, who were there for the fight were eventually put on trial. None of the white combatants went on trial. They were put on trial and ultimately found guilty. And Iverson was sent to prison. Um, he was ultimately had his, um, his sentence commuted um, by Governor Wilder, who was the very first black governor of Chicago. And when he came to power, he commuted Virginia Iverson's sentence, but in Virginia. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it, 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 Iverson didn't end up serving a lot of time, but it was a, it, it, in, in my view, and I think anybody who's really looked at Alan Iverson, it was a defining moment in his life, in the, in the path that his life would take as a, as a person and as an athlete. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it absolutely was a defining moment. Uh, we're talking about Iverson here, but this makes a perfect transition to do a contrast with Michael Jordan, of course, as the star of the last dance. Uh, Allen Iverson came out of high school with this reputation among people who follow these things for this fight that he got into as a senior, uh, goes to Georgetown, plays a couple years at Georgetown and then comes out of Georgetown. And then, you know, he became sort of the poster boy of what was wrong. And I have that in quotes uh, from a marketing yeah. standpoint with the NBA at that time. Uh, with players, yeah. you know, wearing... He was, he was the anti-Jordan. Yes, he so, was the anti-Jordan. Talk about that. Compare and contrast Iverson and Jordan. Yeah, I mean, Iverson, you know, Iverson was the first guy, I think, to wear cornrows in the in the NBA. I think he was the first guy to have visible tattoos. I, I, if he wasn't, he was among the first. Rodman, um, definitely he, Rodman was the first for tattoos, but go ahead. Rodman was? Okay. Yeah. I, I would not challenge Ben the Rain Man. I've learned not to challenge learned... Ben the Rain Man. When it... <laughs> we'll get to that in a little while. <laughs> Your ill-fated attempt to challenge Ben the Rain Man on Bull's Lore. Uh, but yeah, go, yeah, was, go ahead. Yeah, uh... <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> but, 
yeah. but Iverson, Iverson really became, as you said, like this poster child for this this notion that that pro black athletes in the NBA, especially, but even other sports, were you know thugs or could be thugs, mm-hmm. and and you know I, Iverson was a very proud guy. Uh, people that know him, and I never got to know him because he didn't consent to an interview with me, although we have lots of Iverson in our film uh, from archival interviews. Um, people tell you that he was just incredibly, and we saw this in some of this incredible footage we got of him that no one had seen, um, that, that he was this incredibly sensitive person, right? But he was also grew up in very tough circumstances, very tough circumstances. And, um, and when he got to the NBA, he didn't, he didn't want to do what many black athletes, in fact, have done over the decades who have come up from tough circumstances, which was to kind of, you know, quote unquote, clean up his act, if you will. And I say that in quotes, you know, this, this idea that they had to be more palatable to, um, you know, white fans mm-hmm. uh, in the arena and on television and not threatening in any way. You know, it, Shaq O'Neal is an interesting case in that point, too that Shaq O'Neal went out of his way to be this big Papa Bear, you know, intimidating basketball player, but not an intimidating basketball uh, person present. Um, Iverson didn't care about that. Iverson was like, he wanted to remain true to who he was and who he saw he was. And, you know, for some people that was an act of tremendous courage and authenticity. For other people, it was like, who is this guy? He's a thug. He he doesn't get it. He's you know he's bringing this sport down. Yeah, it's by the way you mentioned Shaquille O'Neal, and uh, I, I again this is like a rain man moment, but Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> in some ways is so lucky. Steve, um, he took a swing at a bull center. They had a fight, and uh, Brad Miller was the Bull Center's name, and he was just like the atypical, <laughs> annoying white center in the ABA. And there's a whole long history of of uh, white centers like this going back to the 70s. You know, yeah. they, they would just, like, yeah. Dennis Autry, you know, they would just, like, push and yeah. shove and just, they limited talent, uh, and their their whole purpose was just to annoy the hell out of the, the more talented players. Uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote about uh, this in his book, um, how annoying they were. Uh, but I remember Borwinkle. Yeah, Borwinkle was Borwinkle had more talent than most. But you're right, Borwinkle's one classic <laughs> one from Bulls. But Brad Miller was annoying the hell out of Shaquille O'Neal in a game, and Shaquille O'Neal took a swing at him. And I, Steve, if he had connected, I Lord knows what would right. happen. But you know, I mean, he's a very strong man, and he missed. Yeah. Probably, probably would have been Kermit Washington all over. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Kermit Washington, who slugged Rudy Tomjanovich in 1977, I think it was. Anyway, ruined his career uh, as a player in the NBA. I, I just feel as though Sha- Shaquille O'Neal, every day should wake up and go, thank God I miss Brad Miller because yeah. it, it would have turned yeah. – it, it would have been harder to convince, oh, that he was just a nice guy. You, you get what I'm saying? If yeah. he had actually connected. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, and and Shaquille Shaquille had that edge to him, but he, I think, at a certain point, he he recognized for him, for him, and Allen Iverson. It wasn't that Allen Iverson didn't recognize it; he just didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think Shaquille, at some point, recognized that um, it was, this path was a little fraught with peril, 
especially for someone his size and power. You know what I mean? It's like that that he he could be asking for real trouble. Um, and Iverson, you know, Iverson was barely six feet tall. People say he weighs 160 pounds soaking wet as a player. Um, you know, he, he he wasn't an intimidating physical presence, but he sure, sure as hell intimidated or scared a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, who, who thought that he was, uh, you know, he was the most divisive. I would say at the time, he was the most divisive um, American athlete since Muhammad Ali, I would say. I yeah. don't know if you would agree with that. I have to think about that the most. I have to think about that. But he certainly, uh, yeah, oh, God. And it wasn't just uh, white people. I, I know uh, quite a few uh, no. old, older black guys are like, yeah, this kid, he doesn't play the game. The right. You know, anyway, I used to hear that. I, I, I yeah. actually love the way the guy played. Uh, Allen Iverson, I remember in 2001, I think it was, he, he was a one-man team. He took the um, Sixers to the championship against the Lakers. Yeah. And how can, how you cannot just love the way the guy played, all the heart he had out there. Uh, but you, you, you mentioned... Well, and, and then there's, that, there, there's that, that great moment, you know, which is part of the Allen Iverson lore, not, and not the practice, practice that, there's that, but the, the moment that he he double crossed over mm. Jordan um, and hit a jump shot and they totally broke Jordan's ankles yes. on, on, on the move. That is a historic. And when I did the film, this is like, you know, I did this film back in 2008, 2009, right? This is long after that moment. Okay. <laughs> Both those guys are gone. Um, although, well, I was, was still hanging around, um, but, but uh, you know, Jordan was gone at that point. Right. And, I talked to high school players and they knew that moment. Yeah. You know, they had that moment down. That was like, yes, you know, that was a seriously, arc, uh, you know, um, you know, a huge moment in the history of basketball as far as they were concerned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember I, I could still see it. I was of course a bulls fan. I was, Hurt, it crushed. It was crushed. I, I felt like my ankles were broken, uh, but it was, yeah. Uh, all right. You talked about um, in your movie uh, how Alan Iverson uh, was, uh, it was like divided. Attitudes toward Alan Iverson were divided along uh, race. It seemed to Mostly, me. Mostly, but not exclusively. Not exclusively, because there were definitely black people who felt like this kid was taking advantage of the system when he before all this happened and then he was asking for trouble and blah 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 you know so it wasn't and there were certainly white people that felt strongly in iverson's corner but you know by and large it was racially divided and and uh what i was going to say was in contrast it seemed as though those championship bulls teams uh united people cross racial lines at least in the city of chicago do you agree with that point yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's that thing that um, that's often said about sports, right, and basketball front center, that, you know, that um, sports has been part of the great um, process of socialization of getting white people to um, look at black people differently and, and look at them as equals and, and you know, because if you're going to the if you're going to the uh, arena or the stadium and you're cheering for black athletes that are on your team to win the championship, that, that, that breaks down barriers. And, 
And I think there is absolutely some truth to that. There's, there's, I think there's no question that there's some truth to that. I think it's also true, though, unfortunately, that, that the, it, it also can exacerbate racist ideas about black men in particular and black athletes. Um, and that has certainly been the case, too. And the thing about the Bulls was, um, you know, at least with the Bulls, um, you, you had this preeminent athlete, Michael Jordan, right, who was who seemed to somehow hover above race uh, in this country, and and that was in part because he was such a spectacular uh, player. He was spectacularly handsome. <laughs> um, he was incredibly charismatic, and he went out of his way to avoid anything that could in any way. Um, push the buttons of race. He was he was sort of the perfect black athlete for white America, and that's not to denigrate him at all, but that to just say that that and so that Bulls team, which you know, it's two great stars who were probably the two best players in the league for for that run. Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were black, but it neither of them were were athletes who who in any way pushed any buttons. And then you had great white supporting cast too. You know what I mean? You had some, I mean, not great players, but you had the Steve Kerrs and the Paxons and, um, you know, you had guys who were part of the Antonio Kukoc who were part of the team so that, so that, you know, I think white fans who, who wanted some rooting interest of their own, if you will, felt like it was, uh, you know, it was sort of like they, they had that as well. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, the, the supporting cast, uh, the bench players, of the Chicago Bulls throughout that run, uh, a lot of white guys, Kukoc, Kerr, Bushler. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, and guys who contributed. They weren't just guys down at the end of the bench like in the old days where they used to say that the end of the bench in the NBA, once the NBA really turned black, the end of the bench was reserved for white guys that were never going to play just to keep the racial makeup of the team a little better. Yeah. But, <laughs> these, were, these were guys that actually played. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have uh, happily uh, filled that role if they needed me. If if a called upon, <laughs> I could sit and not play as good as any guy in America, white or black. Uh, you want a guy at the bat, white guy? I'll sit there. Uh, you, you you said Jordan. <laughs> you you said jo- <laughs> Jordan seemed to hover above race. When you put the seem to hover, was there any reason why you said that? Uh, was there something hesitation to say that? Well, I think I think that in I think that in certain segments of the black community, and I'm not an authority on this as a white guy who you know played basketball uh, and even and the films I've made. But I think there certainly was in certain corners of the black community a disappointment with Jordan over this, that a feeling that he could do more, and it, it came to a head, of course, you know, when he um, when he didn't endorse. Um, now, now I'm speaking on the name of the Harvey guy Gant. running in North Carolina. Yeah, wow. Harvey Gant. Mm-hmm. Um, when he didn't endorse Harvey Gant, um, you know, there was there was a bit of an uproar, and he famously said, "You know, Republicans buy shoes too," and that that kind of you know seemed to sum up <laughs> Jordan's worldview yeah. in some ways. So I think you know th- there were certainly people that felt like he should have taken you know, some kind of position on, on the issues of the day and, and chose not to. 
Uh, Steve, so when you arrived in Chicago and started shooting Hoop Dreams, make, uh, you followed uh, Arthur Agee and William Gates for four years of their high school careers. This was that very moment uh, when Michael Jordan was establishing himself as the greatest player in the NBA and was leading the Bulls through those steps. Those, uh, if, In fact, at literally the four years that uh, Arthur and William were in high school, that you followed them in Hoop Dreams, which if you haven't seen the movie, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it follows uh, two teenage boys from Chicago through their high school career. Literally those four years were the years that the Bulls uh, would make it to the playoff, lose to the Pistons, and then finally break through. It culminates in 91. Yeah. The Arthur and the William graduate was the year the Bulls uh, won the championship, finally won the championship. So while you're making that movie, what was Jordan's presence like in the city of Chicago, particularly in the neighborhoods where you're filming? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, it, uh, on the West side, um, Isaiah uh, very much still had a real presence because he was on the bad boy Pistons, and Isaiah was born and raised you know, in, on the west side of Chicago, you know, in a part of town known as K-Town. And, um, and you know, Isaiah went out to Westchester where William and Arthur first went out to school to St. Joe's and, you know, William stays there and Arthur is forced to leave. But, you know, he was a huge star for Gene Pingator out there at St. Joe's High School. They didn't win the state championship. They were runner-up, but but, you know, he put them on the map big time and, and then went on to Indiana and had great success and then was, a, you know, like a, <laughs> one of the all-time greats as a professional. So Isaiah at that time still had a lot of currency um, because he was born and bred in Chicago. Uh, Jordan, Jordan also did, of course, because he was, you know, I think he, at, at that time, he, you know, he didn't have the championships yet, but he was emerging as the most player in the NBA, even more gifted than Magic and, and Bird, even though Bird and Magic were considered winners, you know what I mean? I mean, ter terrific, amazing players, but also winners. And Jordan, you know, got labeled the, the, the guy who's a great player, but not a winner. And But, you know, Jordan obviously, you know, loomed large in the city and, and in the neighborhood to, to the extent that I saw it. One, interestingly, our, uh, William's um, brother Curtis, who's in the film, um, he was known as kind of like little MJ in the Cabrini Green neighborhood because Curtis was like six foot one, but had huge leaping ability, um, powerful body. He was probably more like Jordan's older brother, Larry, that, that allegedly was this incredible athlete, but was just too short <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to, to, to achieve what Jordan did. And, Curtis, I just remember William just talking about Curtis and saying that in the neighborhood, everyone just thinks that he is our MJ. And I remember the first time I interviewed Curtis, <clears throat> I said, so what, what's your game? You know, T tell me a little bit about your game. Cause I hadn't really seen him play and he was kind of overweight and, you know, he was past his playing days. And he said, well, I would just get the ball and I'd go down the floor and I'd dunk it. And I said, Oh, okay. That's, that's great. But so when you couldn't, dunk it what, what, what he goes no 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 i just get the ball come down the floor and dunk it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and he goes yeah. he goes that's what i did and then i saw highlight films of him from his junior college day yeah and that's exactly what he did. <laughs> yeah no I, I yeah i actually saw him play in high school and that was pretty much he was a north side 
kid. He, I think he went to Wells mm-hmm. High School. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was, yeah, you know why? Yeah, why? Why shoot the jump shot if you could just dunk it? Uh, yeah, but now, he was right. powerful. He had a forty-inch vertical, and you know he just—that's what he did. Yeah, uh, he dunked the ball. Uh, he, all right, Isaiah. Let's talk about Isaiah. The role uh, Isaiah is in Hoop Dreams. Uh, he's in Hoop Dreams. Uh, he's probably the answer to the question: Who are the only players? in both Hoop Dreams and The Last Dance. I think uh, Isaiah is the answer to that question. Well, I've only seen the first uh, four episodes of The Last Dance, so maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe there'll be a Hoop Dreams reference, uh, Steve, uh, in the movie. Uh, there should I be. hope so, because then we'll, we'll sue them or something. We'll get, <laughs> kind of get, get some money out of this. <laughs> yeah, better yet, a City So Real reference. Can you guys work City yeah. So Real in there? Uh, no politics, yeah. man. Uh, we're keeping politics. Um, yeah, really. All right, so uh, Isaiah is in, uh, you're in Hoop Dreams. He plays that role. There's that great scene where he's dribbling the bucket. Still see it with his eyes closed, man. And... Um, talking to the kids uh, at a camp uh, at St. Joe's, Pingator's camp. And uh, and then in the Isaiah is now in the news as a result of the um, the last yeah. dance because... <laughs> this last episode especially. Yes, he walked off the court with Lambeer. Um, and I just want to say, make a political observation. It was Bill Lambeer's idea not to shake hands with the Bulls, according to Isaiah Thomas. Bill Lambeer uh, was a white Republican. I'm just putting that out there, folks. So that that'll and the the dirtiest player in the league, dirtiest dirtiest player in the league, which you know sort of sums up Republicans the way they play politics. So I'm just saying, (laughs) hey Isaiah, I could have told you not to listen to a white Republican. All right, yeah. Uh, all right, enough political. <laughs> That'll get you far, listening to a white Republican. He skates, by the way. Let me just make this. You talk about racial uh, ramifications. Bill Ambeer engineered the whole thing. It was Bill Ambeer's idea. Bill Ambeer's a dirty player. Uh, he's still proud. He defiantly say, I walk off. Yeah, I did it. They're a bunch of whiners, and I do it again. Isaiah's the one who's paying the price, Steve. Do you follow yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like got yeah. some Allen Iverson yeah. overtones there. The white guy stirs up the stuff, and it's the black guy that pays the price. Just saying. That's right. That's right. Um, That's a great point. That's a great point. And Lambia was such a hated he, – he was he was such a hated player for anyone in, in Chicago, but not just in Chicago, around the league. People hated that guy. Yeah. You know? Only Detroit loved him. Yeah, and even then, that was a little shaky. Uh, all right, so let's yeah. talk about uh, Isaiah's reputation. Uh, and what's your take on Isaiah walking off the court, not shaking hands with Michael Jordan? Well, first of all, I need to just say that Jordan appears in Hoop Dreams too, but he's mainly on television. <laughs> he's exclusively on television. Wow, so that's, the film. I forgot that. <laughs> the, All-Star, the All-Star game in Chicago in 88. Yes, so, you're correct. Um, yep. So... Uh, the boys are watching, you know, Arthur and William are watching the game from home because, of course, they're not at the game. But, you know, the walking off the court, it's like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with Jordan on that. And, you know, Wesley Morris, who's this really great movie critic who's now writing for the New York Times, uh, he wrote a, a great piece on the series. And he, he says that Jordan drops a house on Isaiah in yeah. the series. <laughs> and, and it's, I think that's pretty much true. I mean, you know, I'm with Jordan on that one because I feel like 
Um, and but but you're so right that Isaiah shouldn't be the guy, the only fall guy for that. You know, because he was the superstar, he, he was the fall guy, and um, and because of some other history, right? Going back to the All Star days. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that I I just think that um, I, I'm a firm believer that you don't, you, you, yeah, you 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 do the right thing at the end of the series and you you'd be a, a good sport, you know, and Jordan definitely was that all those years, you know, when, when he, he, he had some incredibly crushing losses. So I'm, I'm with Jordan on that one. I don't know. Where are you at? Oh, I mean, this is a no brainer. I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about something, that's, you know, I, I, uh, Oh, I have so many memories of this, but, um, I saw, it, it's interesting because I th- I think the the documentary did a pretty good job on this one, although they let Lambeer off the hook. But I saw, yeah. um, so maybe they didn't do a great job on it. But I I, I remember seeing they contrasted the way uh, the Pistons responded to being to losing to the Bulls, the way. Um, Boston responded when when they finally were eliminated by the Pistons, and they're very comparable situations. The Pistons were clawing their way up to the top, and they had to get past Larry Bird and the Celtics, and they finally did uh, after a couple heartbreak series in the eighties. Yeah, and uh, I remember seeing Kevin McHale uh, shaking hands with Isaiah Thomas at uh, in the aftermath of that game. Uh, and in congratulating him, and uh, and I always that was in my mind whenever when when I thought about how, in contrast, the Pistons walked off without shaking the Bulls' hands, congratulating them. And in the movie, Isaiah Thomas said he explains, "Well, I grabbed his hand; he was walking yeah. off." And then I've since read articles where Celtics were saying, "I don't know if you've seen this, Steve, but like, this is so unfair to say we were walking off the court." not to shake their hands that we were in that game was being played uh, in the silver dome stadium in Detroit or in the suburban Detroit. And we were told to leave for safety reasons because fans were about to swarm the court. And so when they show Larry bird leaving, it wasn't like Larry bird was leaving. Like he was Bill Lambeer, a poor sport. He was leaving because the coach said, go to the locker room, get off, get yeah. away before you get hurt by the fans. And so the Celtics were saying, you know, this is so unfair. Everybody's mad about how they're presented, you know, because the reality is, Steve, I can't recall uh, any team so blatantly disrespecting the team that defeated them. I I, I do remember Jordan shaking hands, uh, and they showed it. That's part of dropping the house on on Isaiah because they showed Jordan shaking hands. (laughs) And... um, So yeah, well, yeah, and I, I, I did, I didn't, I hadn't read the, the Boston defense of that that you just said, so I didn't know that, and so that that just all the more underscores the sort of rationalization that's going on um, by Isaiah uh, in the in the in the show, you know, for 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 unforgivable behavior. Well, so, you know, it's just I mean, like, Isaiah, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah famously, um, and and this you might see was to his credit but he famously showed up you know he had he had real issues with uh, Bob Knight when he was his coach right mm-hmm. which totally understandable that you know jerk um, and he famously showed up at a at an Indiana awards banquet invited by 
them and proceeded to trash night at the banquet <laughs> um, to kind of get his revenge on night in a very public way. So, you know, Isaiah was a, you know, Isaiah was a tough customer. And it, it, again, doesn't excuse the behavior, but he, you know, he had that streak in him. And, um, and so, you know, um, he, I think he's changed in recent years, or he's certainly tried to change. And he certainly went out of his way to, to sing the praises of Jordan once he retired and was, a, you know, a, you know, color commentator talking about how great Jordan is at every chance he got. So, I, you know, I think there's a part of him that wanted to live that down, I, I want to think. But, you know, he didn't he didn't do the right thing in that documentary. He should have just said, you know, n- not just hindsight. It was wrong. It was we were wrong, you know. Well, well Isaiah is an interesting combination of things. Uh, he's got a very angelic face with a, a, a real sweet smile. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he has got that uh, a chip on his shoulder that's huge because he's got. Yeah. Uh, and he reminds me he has a chip on his shoulder like Norm Van Leer, my favorite bull. He had that chip because yeah. he's a small guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was just a small guy in yeah. a big man's league, and he had to fight harder. And uh, so that combination of the angelic smile and that chip, it, it's you know, it's a mixed message to put, I've been saying that a lot lately about the pandemic, our response to pandemic. Well, this is a mixed message. And so I don't think Isaiah ever forgave Michael Jordan for being the big star in his hometown. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, Even now, I think he's struggling with that one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But he, but he did when he was color commentator those years, right. When he was on TV, I just remember hearing him constantly singing Jordan's praises. Uh, you know, about how great Jordan was. And and I remember because it, it was surprising at first, given his attitude towards Jordan. But I think you're absolutely right. That's not that's not in contradiction to how he feels, which is, I think you're right. You know, I think it's a good point that, that Jordan owned Chicago in a way that only Isaiah would have owned Chicago otherwise. Yeah. If, you know. If, if, just imagine if Isaiah... It all worked out, but if Isaiah Thomas had been drafted by the Bulls, and I really was hoping, I remember oh, yeah. when he came out of college in 81, I was like, oh, please, Bulls, please, Bulls, get Isaiah. Uh, <laughs> I f- forget who we got. I think Ronnie Lester, I want to say. I don't know. It's off the top of my head. Uh, all right. Now, let's put on your uh, filmmaker's uh, film critic hat and talk about uh, the, uh, the Last Dance as a movie. Um, what's your assessment of it? Well, I, I think, and, and I've never been a crack addict, but if I, was, if I was a crack addict, this is crack for somebody who's really jonesing for a fix right now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really entertaining. Um, it's a trip down memory lane. Uh, it's harmless for the most part. Um, you know, unlike crack, I think. I don't think crack's harmless. But, yeah. but, but, you know, there's a, it's, or as someone told me yesterday, you know, it's like a popcorn movie version of the story. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It doesn't mean that there's no depth to it. There is some depth. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we get to peek behind the curtain to some extent of who Michael Jordan was and is in a way that, that we've not gotten before because he has always been so guarded about everything. Um, but it, you know, it, it also ignores 
a lot of, um, and I think purposefully, I mean, I think this is a choice. It's not like, a, it's not, it's not, I don't think filmmakers would view this as a failing. I think it was a choice. Um, it, it, you know, it ignores race uh, and the role that race has played in the NBA during that time. It ignores Chicago as a city for the most part, at least so far in the first four episodes. We, we, you don't get much of a sense at all of the city and the city's place in in the story or not in the story. You know, the fact that the Bulls played at the stadium there on the west side at a time when, you know, that was a pretty dicey part of town. We had the Henry Horner homes and, um, you know, it was a tough neighborhood. And all of that is kind of like ignored so far anyway. And, and you know, there was this really great article um, that I got turned on to just recently by this uh, ESPN writer named Wright Thompson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a he wrote a piece. You probably read it, but he wrote a piece when Jordan was turning fifty. He hung out with Jordan um, for a week or so, and that piece is so revealing. It's on ESPN.com. It's, that piece is so revealing of who this man is now um, that it's also a great window into who he was. And I wonder, and but I doubt if we'll ever see Jordan out out of that chair in the present. You know, he's in that chair, <laughs> yeah. in that lovely home. I have a feeling we're never going to see Jordan, the man today, in any meaningful way. And I'm a firm believer as a filmmaker that when you turn to tell uh, the stories of a person's career or life, if they're not dead, uh, there's much to be mined by spending some time with them in the present and not just to interview them, but to spend time with them because it can be a real window into their, you know, soul, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's a, my guess is that Jordan dictated the terms of his appearance yeah, in the movie. For sure. He did. Uh, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, if, if, if it's the same article I'm thinking of, it's the one where Jordan talks about his favorite movies, Westerns. He reminisces yeah, about, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. and he loves, and, and, and he watched, and he, and he watches LeBron on, um, he watches a game of LeBron's on television and, and, and proceeds to dissect how he would guard LeBron and says, you know, he, he goes, you know, the thing with LeBron is you have to push him left always because he always shoots jump shots when he goes left. If he goes right, he's going to the hole and he's too strong. You can't keep him from the hole. Yeah. So he would just be shooting jump shots with me. You know, and he, I, I love the other day uh, on the radio, they had Michael Wilborn uh, on um one of the radio shows, the NPR shows, and the the interviewer said, "So, what what is there? You know, what's the belief about the fact that, um, or the belief that you know Jordan's timing with this was all about trying to plant a flag as the greatest of all time because LeBron, uh, you know, has has um, come up in the conversation a lot more and more of late, and 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 that the day Jordan." decided to go forward was the day after uh, LeBron let Cleveland back from that miraculous 3-1 deficit against the Warriors, and they won the championship. And I guess LeBron said that he was in the conversation at that point, the greatest of all time. So, you know, Michael Wilborn, who's a buddy of Jordan's, right, is asked, do you think that had any bearing on his decision to finally say yes and go forward with this? And he said, absolutely not. There's no truth to that. He goes, he goes, You've heard LeBron say he's the best. Have you ever heard Jordan claim he was the best of all time? He's never said it. And I'm like, so that's your that's your rationale for why 
I mean, of course, Jordan never said it to him. That would be the ultimate weakness is for him to have to say it. Yeah. He's got everybody else saying it. He's never going to say that. Yeah. He's never going to say that. I mean, that was such a ridiculous answer to that. Well, <laughs> that question. I, I, I'll give you a little tip. If you want to remain in uh, Michael's good graces, you got to know how to answer the questions. And that comes true. Yeah. And that uh, ESPN <laughs> article really play, makes that theme come home. You know, like yeah. he's mad at Barkley because something Barkley yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they're, they're still throwing Jerry Krause under the bus in this town. Unbelievable maligning of Jerry Krause. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I'm going to withhold my temptation here, Steve, to go into another defense of Jerry Krause. It seems like that's my role uh, in this movie. One thing I get your reaction to, I don't know if you, uh, as a movie maker, I thought of this as a journalist. They had, In the movie, they had set up Doug Collins as an interesting character. And he is an interesting character. Yeah. And by the way, just yeah. as an aside, a great basketball player in his own right until his knees yeah. went out. Doug Collins Absolutely. was a great basketball player. Uh, phenomenal. So they, phenomenal basketball player. And so they set him up as this character, as this interesting character who was very important in Michael uh, Jordan's development. Jordan's heaping praise on him, you know, uh, as a coach. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you, if you caught this, it's like, all right, we got to get rid of him because literally he was fired. Yeah. You know, how do we deal yeah. with this? I don't know. We'll just, uh, it, they, how did they throw him? They kind of just threw him under the bus. Like, uh, well, he was too emotional. And he, he, they, he, in other words, they, they didn't, they used him to get to that point. Uh, to, in the narrative to contribute to the narrative and then they just got rid of him and they didn't even bring him back to yeah. like, defend himself you know what I mean no no the closest they come to it is they just have that one awkward moment where I forget exactly what he's saying but he's just kind of saying you know basically it ended and, and he's got this pained look on his face right and they, they let the moment play out so you see like yeah this was this was really painful for him, but they don't bother to let him speak to it. You well, know no, what I mean? And it's like, you know, what he said was, and it's what he said was, I had an inkling and I'm paraphrasing yeah. that Jackson yeah. was next in line. I just had this sense yeah. Yeah. that they were positioning yeah. Jackson but, to replace me. Uh, like, right. like a and, Shakespearean and the, moment. And the yeah. way, yeah. And, and the way he says it and the way you're looking, you've got a great memory for this because you are the rain man, but it's like <laughs> the, 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 the way he says it, you know, that he is really holding back from saying, <laughs> really expressing himself. And you, you just wonder in that moment, whether the filmmaker really pressed and said, talk about it, you know, cause you don't, you don't get it. You know, you just get, you get, you get the inkling and then we move on. And, and it, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, it's, uh, this, this is, this is not, not going to be a series that's going to, um, uh, that's going to, you know, take anybody on to, in, in any kind of really harsh, put anybody in any kind of real harsh light or negative light, except crowds. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, and maybe, and maybe Reinsdorf to the degree that he just hangs himself whenever he's in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, it, it, but it's like, you know, there's, there's a, there's a kind of care being taken here because if, if Doug Collins really got screwed by Jackson and I mean, it wasn't Jackson personally that screwed him, you know, they gave they them a job. What are you going to say? No, yeah. I can't do that to Doug. Yeah. But you know, they don't, they don't want anyone to come away. I think ultimately feeling too badly about anybody. 
um, and and including too sorry for Doug. <laughs> well, well, here's here's you know, here's a reality, uh, and we'll move on from um, Doug Collins after I do this. But I, Doug Collins was Michael's. Michael liked Doug Collins as a coach, and he also liked Kevin Lackery as first coach as a coach because essentially they saw how good he was, and they said, "Michael, go do what you got to do." You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And uh, it's like I don't know if you. Pete Maravich was the great college uh, player, and his dad, oh, yeah. Press Maravich, his dad was the coach, Press. And the the, the, the standard play was, shoot, Pete, shoot. <laughs> shoot. So it's similar yeah. with Jordan and Collins. And uh, so the criticism there is some, that Collins wasn't sophisticated enough to take advantage of Jordan's skills by including the other players. I don't know how fair that is to Collins, Steve, because the players that Collins dealt with were not as good as the players that Phil Jackson had to deal with. You get what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. he had Scotty yeah. and Horace at, at very early. So it's really not that fair to Collins. Like, oh, he's a village idiot. He couldn't figure out, you know, that uh, if you have good players around Jordan. But Jordan did take Collins back as his coach when he came back to Washington. I don't know, I don't know if they're going to even get into that when Jordan. Right. And so it's like they're sort of criticizing Collins. Well, if he's such a bad coach, why did Jordan take him back as his coach in Washington? Did you see what I'm saying? So – yeah, maybe. Well, they... and I, and here's the thing. I remember at the time when you know this is remembering way back when Collins got fired. Uh, I don't. I you know you're the rain man, so you tell me <laughs> if this was what was what was written. But what I remember being written wasn't about anything of that. About that you know he can't. He he's too. He he's got the wrong coaching philosophy in terms of how to use Jordan. What I remember them saying was is that Doug Collins was just wound way too tight, and that, and that he, you know, he was he was increasingly a problem for some of the players. Now this might all been smokescreen bullshit. Oh, I don't know if I can say you that. You can on say your it. podcast. It's a podcast. But, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, who knows what if if it was true? But I remember that was a lot was in the paper. Is that Doug Collins is just he's wound too tight. He's he's not a guy that that the players are comfortable with, but I, I would bet at least this much is true that Doug Collins is wild type. It was wild type kind of guy. I'm sure he was difficult for Krauss to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he was very difficult for Krauss to deal with because he, he was a former great basketball player and Krauss was like a baseball scout. Yeah. And so like, you know, what are you trying to tell me how to run a team? You know what I mean? So I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some truth to that, um, you know. And you know, the thing is, is that I mean, what one of Phil Jackson's great greatest gifts, as people have said, was his ability to ultimately to manage egos of players and and superstars in ways that that not a lot of coaches can do it. Um, but the greatest year of Collins' coaching career was the year after Jordan retired. The first time, you mean, no Jackson's um, to go career. play baseball. Jackson, I mean Jackson's yeah. career. Mm-hmm. Jackson's career was after Jordan retired. The first time to go play baseball. Um, that year, when Scotty was the star of the team, the only star of the team, um, and they almost they almost made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and and to the finals. Um, that was a hell of a coaching job. Yeah, and, and of course Scotty, the greatest. You know, sort of explication of Scotty as this truly, truly, you know, magnificent player. 
Well, uh, it's probably a good a point as ever to, to close down this particular interview. When you asked me how long ago, I said about a half hour. And this is just like the one I did with my good friend Kevin last week. I start talking Bulls basketball <laughs> with old friends. We can go on forever. Uh, but that I'd be really curious, Steve, how they when uh, when they move the narrative along to that season. I, I, I assume they're going to dwell on that 93-94 Bulls season where Jordan was out playing baseball and the Bulls made yeah. that remarkable run that ended in disappointment against the Knicks. How they're going to deal with a game that you actually were at. Uh, that was game yeah. four where the Bulls tied it up. Or no, was it, yeah, it was, it was game four, right? Game where they tied it up. Yeah. And there was a fight and uh, the Bulls were down by one and Phil Jackson called a play for Tony Kukoc and, and Pippen wouldn't go into the game because he was sulking. Uh, and I believe Kukoc, when he hit that shot to give the, game, the Bulls the win at the buzzer, saved Scottie Pippen's career in Chicago because if they lost that game. That's right. Uh, I'm really curious you know, how they're going to handle uh, to that one. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious about how they handle that. Um, absolutely. Because it'll be curious to see how they handle Scotty and that, you know, I, I know I remember at the time that Cartwright went in the locker room and basically told Scotty that Kukos just saved his career. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> you need to go thank that man because, Especially it was interesting because Kukoc was right. Kukoc was the guy that both Jordan and, and Pippen had picked on a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, before they finally accepted him for the for the player that he was and, and the important player he was. So of all people to save Scotty's career was the Kukoc was was particularly good. But what I'm really curious what one of the things I'll be really curious about, but I think I already know the answer, is will they ask Jordan how he felt about how good the Bulls were without him. Will they get him to talk about that? Will, will they, because they, would they win 55 games that year? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that, they, 55, yeah. They, they, they lose the greatest player of all time, and they win 55 games the next year. Now, that, I, and I'm not disputing Jordan's position in the, you know, <laughs> in the Pantheon, but still, I, I had a theory for years that the guy who was pulling for them to lose in the playoffs more than anybody was Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> because if they had gotten back to the finals, even if they had won, it would have hurt, tarnished his legacy. That's my view. Uh, that if Michael's listening. I don't think I'll ever get an interview with Michael. <laughs> Michael, by the way, is a huge <laughs> fan of the Ben Jarofsky podcast. Uh, he's probably... <laughs> <laughs> so then my other quick story is, and the, the irony of this is, is that I was producing that film, but my career was not going places very fast back then. Um, so I was working as a production assistant on TV commercials. And I worked on two spots that Jordan was in. But this one spot he was in, we were shooting at um, University of Chicago. <clears throat> and I was a production assistant. So I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole, right? I'm the guy that that goes to stock the cooler with drinks, uh, sweets up the set, that kind of thing. So the producer comes up to me and says, so Jordan's going to be here shortly. We have this, this expensive Nike air jacket, leather jacket that he's going to wear in the spot. He says, it's your job to make sure he doesn't walk off with it. 
<laughs> Someone's got to do it. <laughs> That's an like, important job. Wait, wait, what? They go, we know, we, we know he's going to try to walk off with it. We need, we can't let him have the jacket. It's too expensive for, you know, you've got to make sure he doesn't take it. And I was like, holy shit, you've got to be kidding me. So, so we, do the, we do the spot, whatever, and then sure enough, he's leaving and he's wearing the jacket. He's walking out. And so I go over to him because I'm worried I'll never work in Chicago yeah. again if I don't do my job, right? Yeah. I go over to him and I go, uh, excuse me, Michael, um, listen, uh, you know, the producer telling me that we have to like have the, the, the jacket back. And he looks at me and he's just be one of those Michael Jordan death stairs. Yeah. And he, and he goes, I wore this jacket to the shoot. And I went, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. No worries. No worries. No worries. And of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. I saw him come in. He didn't have the jacket yeah. on. So I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Hey, listen, have a good day. You know, yeah. I went back over and I said, I tried. I'm uh, sure they were laughing at me. They yeah. were probably getting a big laugh out of me trying to get the jacket off of Michael Jordan. I, I thought the punchline was going to be when he looked at you and he goes, aren't you that kid that was reading those questions to me? I thought that's yeah. what the... <laughs> You're that dummy that was reading those questions to me? No. Oh. No. He, he forgot what I looked like the moment I asked <laughs> yeah, the last you, question. You, you no longer existed. <laughs> I no longer existed. All right, Steve James. Uh, yes, we did go over time, but who cares? It was a blast. And I'm uh, doing these uh, every week after uh, the Bulls. So maybe we'll drag you back. Uh, and then you can have an update on City Soriel, which, by the way, all producers out there, I'm telling you right now, that's a great flick. Ron, don't walk to what? What's the word? Distribute it. Whatever the word. Buy it. All right? <laughs> Dig deep into those pockets. It's a great movie about Chicago, and it does not duck from serious issues of race and class and gentrification and police relations. It doesn't duck and dodge. So uh, anyway, Steve James. And it's entertaining. And it's entertaining. And, right? and it's entertaining. Yeah. Even if they did cut Ben Jarofsky out of most of it. All right, Steve. <laughs> thank you very much. Really appreciate it. All right? You take care. Thank you. Greatly enjoyed talking. Bye. All right, everybody. So long. That's it.